This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I was, was in college. I took a public speaking class and sat there with 20 really nervous college students as they were, you know, we we knew we had 10 speeches that we had to give. Ugh, so scary. But I thought, and I did this, uh, I did this young. I think I was 18, 19 years old. And I realized at a young age that, holy cow, I can, boy, I can do this. I can give a speech that's uh, motivating and exciting and and I'm telling you, it changed me because now all of a sudden I knew I could, wor- I could work the words. In fact, my father-in-law always told me I had the gift of gab. And when he said it, it always sounded like offensive, like, oh, it sounds like I'm just a blabbermouth. But um, then uh, I, I learned to write. I learned to uh, do other things. I, I started learning radio even back then in the day and uh, doing broadcasting. And then I became a speaker. And notice I, my entire profession is around wordsmithing and the confidence to do that. Now I, I'm not – I usually don't get very nervous uh, speaking in front of large groups. But all of a sudden I realize that my confidence comes from my ability to carry myself. People might even think I'm a leader even though I don't pay much attention to detail like that. But notice – to have uh, uh, to have the ability to speak is a gift. To have the ability to listen, in my belief, is even a higher gift. So if you can actually sit down and assimilate and take in what someone's saying, that's even pa- more powerful, I think, than the ability to speak. But most people don't take a listening class. Think about it. Have you? Have you ever taken a class to learn to listen to another person? But even more importantly than listening— would be the the ability to actually be impressed or moved or changed by the pain or suffering of another person and let it actually influence you. Now, nobody's taken that class. I have couples that come to learn how to listen to one another and communicate, but there's this magic moment I found in every real, I call it a real conversation, when we actually get real with each other because we're recognizing each other's emotions, we're exploring each other's story or stories, we're attending to each other's pain, and we're lifting each other. That's a real conversation. Recognizing, exploring, uh, attending, and lifting the conversation. But if I can do that in this magical moment, and I was able to do it last night with some of my clients, they're hearing their partner is hurting, they're hearing that they're suffering, And then I just ask them something simple like, what does it feel like to know that your partner in life feels so unappreciated by you? And when somebody actually lets that deeper thought in and they they get emotional, like it feels horrible. I don't want her to feel that way. And once they have kind of the empathy about that, it starts to create a change. So tell her what you feel. And then when he starts to emote and share how he feels bad that he makes her feel that bad, it creates a very real moment. It's powerful. So make sure as you're trying to be a better communicator that you're not just doing it to manipulate everyone else in the world, 
but let's do it to understand everybody. And let's not just understand the words they're saying. Let's understand the emotion that they're sharing. Make sense? It's just connection, 101. It's how we connect to our fellow human beings here on this great big ball of mud. We call Earth. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Finding enough time to sit down and read with our kids seems like a major difficulty. Isn't it funny where we, um, we know what's essential in our lives, we, we say we know what's essential, but if you knew that you could turbocharge your child's brain by reading with them every day for 30 minutes, oh boy, that's a lot of time, Matt. I mean, I mean I, what about The Bachelor? When would we watch The Bachelor? And I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, except I know I don't uh, read it with my kids like I need to. And um, it's, it's hard, and yet it's so valuable. I think it's easy with the first kid. Our first child, we read, everybody read to my, my first child. My second child even got some attention. But my fifth and sixth children, eh, half the time we wonder if they're even home. And so just think about it. A little coach's corner. One of the things I wanted to talk about is it's uh, in the end, it really is the little things that might come from something like reading that might create a little more discipline in your child, might allow them the, the tenacity, the ability to, to put their phone down and to actually seek after something um, that, that might bring more insight, more understanding. It might also help them obviously uh, – with their ability to focus, their ability to to focus their attention on something. So it is a simple, simple little solution that might go a very, very long way. And it also could be, I believe, integrated into what we call family rituals. Maybe part of the ritual would be simply how we decide as a family to go to bed. And, um, you know, if we could have a little bit of time, family time, uh, doing whatever, whether it's reading or praying or talking. Um, we also have talked about on the show over and over the power of the family meal. And if you families that eat together and have a consistent dinner time where everyone's home and they, they spend that time eating without their cell phones on, just the, the wonderful blessings that are there um, as far as the child's ability to feel like they're a member of a group and a team or their family their ability to um, say no to other things uh, and, and live a healthier life, have more self-discipline. Lots of benefits come out of just the family meal. But what about the family reading time? I mean, if you have younger kids, maybe it's time to open up a series of books. And as a family, let's read that series together. The benefit is if you, if you can just get everybody hooked into a story, we could turn technology off and spend a half hour uh, a night reading that. Or you can even make uh, any kind of story time more exciting or fun by having people play parts, giving everybody a different role to play, or acting out the scene, or spending a little time before you start this next uh, section that you're reading and talking about what we're going to read, then read it, and then spend some time talking about what what we read. Another rule I've seen with my kids is keeping it short, I have found a 15-minute to 20-minute lesson is so much more valuable than a 40-minute lesson where they're frustrated the entire time. So if I could give them time to wiggle and fun and have fun and wrestle and do what they need, and then we throw together a really solid 15-minute moment, there's power in that. 
Uh, a lot of times, too, I've even I've even just seen it in teaching in church or teaching a youth group somewhere. If I can just let them kind of relax and be themselves for half of the time that we're together, they will generally give me the other half to influence them deeply. And you'll you'll know you're influencing them because they'll be engaged. But let's remember, family is it's about really it's about this ability to connect and relate to each other. It's about allowing the family to go where the family needs to go. And sometimes as parents we're so dead set on it having to be our agenda, our time frame um, instead of being a little bit more dynamic, and if we could teach our kids the power and the ability to handle dynamic times, we might set them up for success. Not everything goes on schedule. Not everything is perfectly black and white. And this might be a wonderful time to create some more resilience in your kids as you talk about the less black and white scenarios of life. Anyway, it's just reading time, right? Or it's some type of family time. I challenge all of us to, uh, to find that time today. And let's, let's, let's see if we can't habitualize it by making it a time that we can work together every day at the same time. Nine o'clock every night, we're going to have family time. Or 9.30, when we go to bed, it's going to, we're going to go down and, and we're going to read a book together this way. It's just, it's basics, right? Family Basics 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Do you, do you evaluate your impact um, and your ability to give by simply what you have? Or when somebody needs something, do you just immediately step toward that person and know that we'll find something? We'll figure it out. And or do you just oh, I, I can't give because I don't have cash or I can't give because, you know, I'm not in a place to do that. Every single one of us has something unique and amazing and impressive, honestly, that we could be offering the world. And the abundant mentality just simply allows us to start seeing that there are other solutions. A great uh, example that I've seen, it happened just recently as I was sitting down with clients um, where, uh, a, you know, a, a daughter was getting married. She has a, a man in her life. She found him as she was away from the family and, you know, found this great guy. Well, the parents don't like the guy. And, I mean, by the way, I get this example so many times a month, three or four times a month. I will have parents call me saying, we've got to figure this out. I don't want her to marry this person or I don't want my daughter to marry this guy. Um, but in the end, what happened um, is they come in with this dichotomy where it's either they marry or uh, they don't. Either mom and dad win or uh, I win. And in the end, what I found is why dichotomize it? Why is the choice an either or? Why aren't there so many other ways that we could look at this? And um, for example, what we could talk about is – how can we help mom and dad understand why this person is so powerful and awesome that you want to marry him? How do we, as mom and dad, relax and recognize that if your daughter is going to make a decision to bring someone into the family, that um, it's going to happen? So at some point, you're going to need to understand, care, love, and allow people in. And why not start that now? But part of it is because we have a scarce mind, a scarcity mindset where, well, I've only got one daughter and uh, this isn't the guy for her. And so when we start with the scarcity mindset, then all we can have are scarce thoughts. 
And then all that creates are scarce, fearful feelings. And then from the fearful feelings, all we can do is act out and be angry and, you know, do everything we can to stop the relationship. And then what we're becoming is someone that's angry, small, petty, not who we want to be in life. And that impacts what we're becoming. And then what we're becoming over time reinforces our thinking. Life is short. I'm losing my daughter. Now my daughter won't even talk to me. Obviously, it's this guy's fault because the guy, uh, she used to always talk to me until the guy came around. But there is abundance. And abundance doesn't mean that it always goes the way we think it's going to go. But abundance means I can love you. I can understand you. I can care about you. And... I can also choose to listen to my parents and and take in to the fact that they have a whole, a whole other view here. They're seeing things I'm not seeing. Abundance might say that we don't need to hurry and get married, but maybe what we ought to do is slow down the process and get as many people on board as we can. And abundance would say that we all ought to give it a fair try. And um, on and on and on. But whatever we start with, whatever paradigm we begin with, abundance or scarce, is going to set up how you play out the entire situation. And it will amazingly self-fulfill and either create more abundance in your life or more scarcity in your life. It may not, by the way, be the life you thought you were going to have. That's the amazing thing about being abundant is you may realize that I didn't even know I had all of these other resources at my disposal, and now I can use those. And it may be a richer life, different than you thought, but richer in a variety of other ways. So just know abundance is a part of everything we do, and it's natural. And it will create over time, I believe, a healthier effect. I think I think. Your God has abundant ability and resources, right? And so if that's the case, then as human beings, the more abundant we can be, the the better off we can be. It doesn't mean, too, we still can't have, you know, um, boundaries. It doesn't mean we still can't have rules because we can. And inside of those rules, there are an, a, a plethora and abundance of solutions that we can still institute to uh, to make change happen and make things happen. Anyway, powerful stuff, folks. Abundance versus scarcity. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When asked a simple question about global trends like what percentage of the world's population lives in poverty, why is the world's population increasing, or how many girls finish school, we systematically get the answers wrong. Do you think your guesses would be too high or too low on those numbers? Here to talk with us about why things may actually be better than we think they are is Anna Rosling-Ronland. She is the co-founder of Gapminder, which you can find at gapminder.org. It's a program designed to promote a fact-based worldview everyone can understand. And she joins us uh, now, I believe, from Sweden. Anna, how are you today? Well, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Is So is it true then when, when we are asked questions, I guess, as humans, we tend to uh, overestimate? Is it that we overestimate or underestimate the numbers that we're being asked? I would say um, if we look at uh, numbers that are concerning trend lines and uh, development, we, we systematically 
uh, think that the world is more dramatic than it actually is. So we usually go for sort of the <laughs> the bad version. Oh, interesting. Are, uh, yeah. But we do so, you say, systematically. So it's it's kind of overall we have a tendency as humans to, I guess, uh, seek out a more dramatic answer than probably the real data would show. Um, yeah, it seems that way. Actually, what we have done, we have asked uh, a set of questions, 12 questions, to uh, 14 countries, people in 14 countries, 12,000 people uh, in total in representative samples. And we asked these questions. And if people knew nothing and were just guessing without reading the questions, they would actually get four correct answers out of 12, just like by random. Because on each question, we have an A, B, C alternative. Hmm. And the thing is, look at, so, so basically going to the zoo, we would end up in a result if they were to pick, you know, ABC bananas without yeah. having to know the questions, they would actually get four, four correct answers. <laughs> While we, as humans, we only get two. So we're actually performing worse than random, and that must come from somewhere. So we have a skewed worldview, and it's, more, it's perceiving the world as more negative than it actually is. So when we're faced with a question where we do not know the answer, we will pick the most dramatic or most negative one, it seems. That is interesting. But a monkey in the zoo or a gorilla in the zoo or whatever would be able to to pick virtually the same percentage as we do. Yeah, better, right? Yeah. Holy cow. (laughs) But the the good news is that actually learning uh, the sort of general trends about the world is pretty easy. And we have some rules of thumb you can actually use whenever you're faced in a situation like this, getting questions you don't know the answer about. So basically by by uh, by just using those rules of thumb from the book, we will actually perform much better than the chimps immediately. Because the thing is, if we just spend a few minutes learning the basics about how how our brains uh, basically fool us and how uh, how the world's global trends and proportions actually are, we can actually beat the chimp easily. Because remember that the chimp is beating us today, but we can learn uh, and read and think mm. and re- you know. Yeah, we, we can, can reason. Reshape. So, mm-hmm. so, so we have a. It's not a, a, a like a gloomy image of it has all it, it it has to be like this all the time. No, we can easily actually uh, perform better than this. And is talk to us about before we get into some of the the tools you use to help us uh, uh, understand kind of this misperception we have. Where does the misperception come from? Is is it just human nature? Um, or is I mean I, I look at the fact that a lot of times in the media the only numbers we share are extreme numbers. Yes, I mean that is I, I would say that is sort of the the way we communicate news. So for something to become a, a newsworthy story, it has to consist of some drama, and it has to most often it consists of something bad has happened, especially if it is a story from far away. We will not hear anything like everyday stories or positive stories from the other side of the world. Usually, we only hear the gloomy stories from there. And of course, that will actually shape how we see the world around us. 
And then I think our brains are wired to be very good at actually uh, uh, recognizing dangers and scary things and react on them instantly. Mm. So it's like our brain uh, is looking for those stories all the time, and we um, we tend to over in our brains as well. We tend to remember the most nasty stories the most. So sometimes people are saying to us that. Uh, asking if we are afraid that media is trying to skew our worldview, if that is a problem. But I would say, I mean, even when the media, which it's most often do, uh, actually try do, does its best to present the world as it actually is, and actually presenting the things happening that they should report about, we still have the problem of our brains actually just remembering the most Stories. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I would say the brain is, is is skewing a lot for us. So, if we just learn how to uh, take control over our thinking a little bit, I think we can actually uh, consume the media in a much more constructive way. Oh, that's great! It really is. It's such an important thing. Idea. Um, yeah. Talk about. Give us some examples of some of these kind of misperceptions or overly exaggerated negative views that we might have. What what did you have in your book that talked about that? Um, so, 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 I mean, one of them that would be related to the media, that would be that um, something to be, I, I, I talked about it a bit before. People usually say that the world is just getting worse. You hear it in, in many different settings in many different places. And if you look around, I, I mean, we have a lot of things actually getting better over time. A lot of trends in the world are actually improving, but no one will report about slow, positive trends. Instead, we hear as soon as the trend has a break in it, then we hear about that break. Mm. And as a result, we will only hear about the bad things going on, even though the overall curve is a positive one, and actually it might probably be the overall curve that is of interest for us to understand the world around us. Right. I think that is one thing. And uh, another thing could be that we very often, when we, when we hear stories, they are often consisting about, uh, of dichotomies. We love stories where, you, where we have someone being good and someone being evil, or where you have a poor and rich. And always when we do that, we forget about the majority that is someone in, somewhere in between which also skews the way we see the world, because we think about these extremes and we, and we forget about the majority. Mm. So it, all this creates like a huge, over-dramatic worldview, which, we are, uh, which are, is guiding us when we try to understand the world around us. And I think it, it can have a, an impact which makes the world look much more scary and much more frightening than it actually is. Mm. It's so and I true. Think that can be a problem. We might we might make the wrong decisions, and and we might feel so stressed that so we might even be uh, passive, you know, and yeah. <laughs> think it's not worth doing anything because everything will fail anyhow. Yeah. But or, if we if we actually saw these positive trends, maybe we could uh, feel less stressed. And if we realized how wrong we usually are about the world, we might. Uh, get this feeling of excitement and, and curiosity, thinking, how could we be so wrong, and how can we fix this? 
I love that. It's uh, and it seems so obvious, right? And the uh, again, we're speaking we're speaking with Anna Rosling Ronland, who um, is the author of the book Factfulness: Ten Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Uh, d- define for us um, factfulness. I think I think it's a fascinating concept. Well, so so factfulness is basically. Uh, the stress-releasing habit of basing your opinions on fact, you could say. Yeah. Because And the reason it is, fa- is stress-releasing, one thing is it, it's uh, stress-relieving to actually know that, you're right, that, that, that you know what's going on. It's usually stressful with ambiguity and, and you know, not known entities. And also it's less stressful as much of the data actually shows us that the world is not as bad as we think. Right. You can yeah. relax. It, it, it also yeah. seems like, because a lot of us, it's, it seems like as you have the freedom to uh, communicate and to speak um, and you have, a, you have a channel like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, everybody feels a need to express their opinion, but only some of those opinions are even based in fact, right? Some of them are opinions yeah. of opinions of opinions. I mean, that, I, I think that is the most common way we do things. So, so, so I would say factfulness is sort of a, a friendly reminder yeah. <laughs> that it might be better that we actually check the facts now and then and that we realize that our brains easily go bananas and, and <laughs> have us believe that the world around us is much more dramatic than it actually is. It's so true. What do we do? Give us some examples of, of some of the tools. I know in the book um, you, you actually give us tools that we can use to make sure we are you know, getting closer to factful. Uh, what are some things we can do? Well, um, if we, uh, we can take one example, that we very often, we're very good at, at, at generalizing. So we have one of the ten instincts. We, so basically, the book is divided into ten chapters, and each chapter is dealing with a certain instinct. So if, if we, for instance, take the generalization uh, chapter, it has to do with, uh, our, that um, we love to make to group things into categories, and basically we have to make categories because otherwise the world would be too <laughs> too many decisions and too many uh, what do you call it uh, when you see things you have too many impressions. Yeah. We have to do groupings, but the problem is that very often we're making the groupings uh, too few of them. For instance, we might we might use um, uh, the, um, the the poor and the rich that I was mentioning previously, and that are I, I think when we hear that, a bell should go off in our brain saying, "Wait, that are, those are only two categories." Right. To understand the world, we need more categories. Two are too few. Could I add one or two categories more in between, for instance? Mm-hmm. Or when we say, um, we easily say, for instance. Muslims, and that sort of people tend to think that that is enough to describe a group, but that that is a group that consists of so many different people True. from so many different countries and so many variations in how they perceive uh, their reli- religiousness or whatever it's called in English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just just that we have to we, we should we should always 
then, as a rule of thumb, so basically in the end of each chapter, first we have a chapter talking about the instinct and, and explaining and uh, different kinds of data around it. But at the end of the chapter, we actually give some practical rules of thumb in a bullet point list. So, so we hope that people can go back to the book after they have read it and use it as a handbook to think more clearly. And when it comes to the generalization instinct, for instance, we just say like this, to control the generalization instinct, question your categories. Mm. That is the key thing. And for instance, we say, look for differences within groups, especially when the groups are large. Look for ways to split them into smaller, more precise categories. That is one of the bullet points. Mm. And the second would be, look for similarities across groups. If you find striking similarities between different groups, consider whether your categories are relevant. (laughs) And then we have a third one. (laughs) Look for differences across groups. Do not assume that what applies for one group might be that you and other people living on level four are unconscious of soldiers applies for others. Interesting. Basically, I mean, and, and, and those rules of thumb, I mean, now when I say them to you, they might not mean that much, but the whole chapter has given like very um, um, vivid examples. And then we, we boil it down to something that you can sort of rely on and go back to later, we're hoping. Mm. You know, it's interesting, just as you even say that, um, it, it goes back to a quote uh, of Bill Gates about your book, that it's one of the most important books I've ever read, he said, an indispensable mm. guide to thinking clearly about the world. Mm. We we live yeah. in the information age. We probably need to make yes. sure we're we're thinking clearly about the data. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a luxurious point in time when we finally have information to consume. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful, and we have all the data. Now it's a matter of actually learning how to control your brain in this information-dense times. And, you, and I think we still have a bit to go to be, um, ha- have sort of quality in how we do that. Yeah. Give us, if you would, a few more instincts that we that we could f- overcome by by understanding and reading your book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say uh, one of the instincts would be the uh, singularity instinct, and we have uh, the thing is that very often I, I think if you close your eyes, you can probably remember that you've seen sometime on the billboards or in. Uh, uh, aid agencies, uh, advocacy, uh, you suddenly see a huge number. Mm-hmm. And it looks very alarming, and you realize something is going bad and we have to do things. But the thing is, uh, in the singularity instinct, we try to teach that as soon as you see a single number, you need to remember that for that number to make sense, you need to do something with it. You need to compare it with something or divide it by something to make the number meaningful. Mm. Because especially when you talk about global issues, counting something on a global level will always give you huge numbers. Right. So one example could be uh, like in the reporting from the UNICEF looking at how many kids under the age of one who dies who died in 2016, and it was about 4 million kids dying that year 
before it, they they became one year old. And I mean, that is a horrible it's number. It's a horrible number. Yeah. It's a horrible number. But if we go backwards in the 1950s, it was 14 million mm. kids dying. And at that point, the population was also much smaller. So if we would, would make a rate of it, the differences would be even bigger. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I think one of the biggest and most important things to remember here is we have slow and steady progress in so many different fields. And to, to understand that, we have to look at the global proportions and the global, uh, the global trends. That is important to understand things, and we have to remember those uh, to compare and divide. Otherwise, we will always end up in a situation where we, we cannot see the full picture. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And so so insightful, so valuable. Anna, thank you so much for your great work and uh, your time, spending your time with us. Again, Anna Rosling Ronland, uh, she is the author of the book Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And uh, boy, oh boy, do we not need to start taking it a lot deeper as far as our understanding and creating more richness in our understanding Especially, it's something that we can do. This is something we can do to make our knowledge even more effective, more specific, um, and, and, and more, I think, useful to all of us. We will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the program to help us all uh, you know, become a little better by uh, understanding the data a little better. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, whether it's uh, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about, you know, international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, Right. But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and um, and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game. All the kids are out there playing. And um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it, and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When they're, well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because the reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? we? We need to, in our conversations, assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, why that person would would be completely frustrated and, and angry about something. 
I um, we had a, a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere. Just wouldn't. Just stuff can happen that just horrible. Wouldn't let it happen. No, I mean, it, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it, so she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late, and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated, like, just, like, what, you don't trust us? You don't think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out, the girl had been, the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It it hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people— Try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation, uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronanland. Slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data, and if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data. And then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it. And even worth it with people that drive us crazy. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. When you have a leaky faucet or a broken fence, you pull out your toolbox, right? And then you find the right tool for the job and take care of it. It's easy to identify what tool to use when you're dealing with objects. But what about people? We all have holes, tears, imperfections. Wouldn't it be nice to have a toolbox for relationships that you could carry wherever you go? Alan C. Fox, the author of the New York Times bestseller, People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity, joined us not long ago to discuss this with us. I began the interview by asking, did you write the book because you think people don't understand relationships? Absolutely, Matt. Uh, I think that getting along well with other people is the most important skill that we can have. And when you think about it, that's not something that's taught in schools. You just have to kind of pick it up from your family and friends. And that's why I've written the People Tools series, uh, including the most recent, out recently, People Tools for Love and Relationships. But relationships are where it's at. Oh, totally. And um, it's so funny, too, because you are a person. Everyone's, we're, we're, we're people, and yet 
the tools tend to elude us. Why why is that? Why do you think we don't teach this stuff in school? Why why isn't this more top of the list? Well, I think as more and more people uh, work and live closer and closer together, I think it becomes more and more important, and we're still uh, back training people for the last century rather than the uh, this century, where I think getting along with old people is going to be number one. It's so true. You have a great quote in the book, I'd rather be alone and together than be together yet alone. What do you mean by that? Well, you know... I'm kind of an introvert personally, but I'd rather be by myself doing things I enjoy than, you know, we've all been with someone and there's that that awkward, uncomfortable silence, things that we want to say or they want to say that aren't said. So, you know, I'd rather be with myself than be with someone and have it not work. I mean, being by someone else and having it work well is, of course, an excellent goal. Yeah, it truly is. And it's... um because there's nothing really worse than being with somebody when you don't feel good about yourself, you don't feel like you even relate to this person, and you just kind of feel stuck. Absolutely. Where where do you go? Um, where do you go? Because it's interesting you brought up you're an introvert. I, I'm actually fairly introverted too, and nobody thinks that because you know you're in this industry where you're out speaking or or on the radio or whatever. Um, does that make a big difference in, in how we relate to people, whether we're an introvert or extrovert? I think it does make a difference because extroverts are much more willing to be out there, talk to people, and, and meet people. So, But I think for both introverts and extroverts, I think the technique of getting along with others is, um, is, 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 is really important. Is that um, – maybe start teaching us what are some of – the lessons and the tools that we should be using or could be using that are in your books? Well, my first chapter in People, Tools for Love and Relationships is the key is you. And that's good news and bad news. It's good news because you have control of your relationships and you can make them work better. You, you, you don't have to wait for your partner. It's also bad news because you can't rely on them. You know, when I was growing up, it was clear. You grow up, fall in love, get married, live happily ever after. Yeah. And if you if you don't live happily ever after, and I didn't, um, uh, then it's easy. The problem is you picked the wrong person. Yeah, right. Mistake. And then so dump them and get somebody else. Well, I did that twice and found out that that wasn't working, so I thought maybe I'd better work on myself. Yeah. So the most important thing and the first important thing is to be the right person. And, and what... What does that mean? I mean, because I guess, is that me being the right person generally or specifically for this person I'm trying to deal with, or both? I think it means both, uh, Matt, because if you're not the right person, you know, you can't turn it on and off. Yeah. And uh, by being the right person, I mean, first of all, you have to be authentic. And, you know, we're all engaged in courtship behavior. You meet someone and they like tennis. Oh, I love tennis. And then you go out and quickly take some tennis lessons. But... uh, you know, I uh, I know a woman, and the day she was married, after the ceremony, she said to her new husband, now I don't have to ever go out on your darn boat again. <laughs> and she had pretended to like it. Well, you know, I don't think that marriage uh, lasted very long. Uh-huh. And it's important to, um, uh, to, to be authentic. Be authentic in all of your relationships. If you like something, say so. If you don't, say so. Well, Tell people what you want. Otherwise, yeah, what are you making? I guess you're just you're living a lie. I mean, he's sitting there thinking, you've liked my boat? I thought you liked my boat for years. No, I've hated your boat. So- yeah, right, exactly. And, you know, there's another one. It talked about living a lie, and, and, and in many cases we do. 
And uh, I have a chapter in the People Tools book that truth is the is the long cut. You know, sometimes when you lie, you make people happy right now, short term, but when they find out, then the stuff hits the fans. So, yeah. You know, I, I just think it's important to, to, to not lie and not mis- misrepresent yourself. Yeah, because in the end, you're going to pay for it one way or another. Yeah. Right? And and I guess that's the key is the sooner the better. But it seems like, too, a lot of this is um, – I mean people come in a variety of sources and, 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 a diff- and shapes and, and paradigms and assumptions. How do I – how do I deal with kind of the, the the dynamics of so many different people I'm going to come across? Well, I have to uh, believe that you have to get along with each type of person, and there are a number of personality types. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, however, to get to know people better, for example, another chapter is the best defense is no defense. You know, hmm. if you fight with people all the time, you're never going to find out what they're about. So if somebody, uh, if my wife, uh, something she'd like me to do differently, I can either have an intent to defend and say, no, I don't do it that way, or you you do it too, or you're worse than I am, or I can have an intent to learn and just ask her what she's really talking about. That makes her feel better, and I learn a lot more on how to get along with her. So, you know, being real and asking people and not being defensive, I think, is a very good idea. Yeah, today we've been talking about how, you know, everybody's got an angle now, and you don't even know everybody's kind of a little defensive, and everybody's protecting their little, you know, part of this environment, whether it's, you know, a genetic difference or a psychological difference or a gender stereotype. Everyone's got an angle, and the idea of being, don't be as defensive. Just just allow allow stuff to be how do you how do you do that how do i not b- build my identity around you know my weirdest or not weirdest my most eccentric part of me <laughs> my most different part of me well you know matt i work in real estate and occasionally uh, properties for sale waf which means with all faults and that means you know if it has a leaky roof or broken windows too bad the buyer's got to fix it hmm. and i think i apply that with people with all faults we all have faults, and if you recognize it's 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 okay to not be perfect. Nobody who's ever lived has been perfect. Right. So accept the fact that you and everyone you meet is with all faults, and just accept that, and don't uh, don't fight against it, and uh, you'll have a much happier life. Yeah, yeah, that perfectionism it's a big deal because then I end up trying to make everyone else around me. That's got to be a relationship killer. Trying to make everyone else around me being more perfect. That's absolutely, and uh, uh, you know when you try to take on the problems of everybody else, uh, your children, your parents, your spouse, your friends, <laughs> I think you're going to burn out pretty quickly and uh, never uh, uh, fully. Uh, you know, I find it's enough to control myself, uh, let alone tro- controlling other people. Oh yeah, no, it's exactly. I mean, yeah, getting your head in the game is hard enough. One of your people tools I know is, and I know you're careful about it, is the concept of abandoning ship. You know, if it's too, if the ship's going down, there is a point you probably need to get off the ship. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm a very loyal person. I've had people work for me and with me for 30, 40 years. I've been married for almost 35 years. But, you know, if the ship is sinking, uh, maybe you, uh, your loyalty to that particular ship um, it was about time to abandon because yeah. 
you know, I mean, people don't change that much. Patterns persist, which is one of my people tools. And if you've had the same problem for years and years, you're not likely to change. They're not likely to change. At some point, as difficult as it may be, it's better to abandon ship and get out of one relationship and make room in your life for another and better relationship than to stay there for the rest of your life. Yeah. How do you how do you know when it's time? What what do you suggest? What are the signs you look for um, to know that you know what this is one that's probably not repairable? Well, I I, I think that um, you know I have a tool in my first book on people tools called uh, the belt buckle, and uh, that is I I heard a uh, interview with a uh, all all American defensive football player who said the great runners you know they can fake with their eyes they can fake with their head they can fake with their shoulders they can't fake with their belt buckle. Hmm. That's where they're going. I watch their belt buckle. And I take that to mean I watch what people do, not what they say. Someone says, I'll be on time, but you know, every time I've gotten together with them for the last two years, they've been half an hour late. I assume they're going to be late. So watch your partner's belt buckle. Watch what they do. And if they do stuff that is unacceptable, like you know, physical violence, emotional uh, uh, abuse, abuse yeah. it's not going to change. You may hope it will. Yeah. It won't. That's a bad bet. So get out. And especially it won't change if you don't change, right? So if you keep taking abuse, then you're just reinforcing that they can abuse you. But if you just say, I'm done, that might be the beginning of a change. Absolutely. And that's the only way to do it. Yeah. You know, they, they say in negotiation, you got to walk away from the table at least once. And um, I'm not ad- ad- advocating that for relationships, but sometimes it's absolutely necessary. That was Alan C. Fox, author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. Again, relationships, they're not easy. They are worth it and uh, worth gathering as many tools in your toolbox as you can to live a healthier, happier life. That's why we do the show. We'll continue the journey more of the Matt Townsend Show straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Terry's been doing some research about parents that apparently have a little cheating problem. So the Wall Street Journal has this article. It's entitled, Why Do Parents Cheat at Family Board Games? Now, is this? Is, I didn't know this was a big thing. Well, so there's this effort to distract your child from the technology. Yeah. Get them away from the phones and the yeah. tablets, computers. And so parents have been purchasing board games. They right. figure we'll teach them some strategy. They can play some games. It's fun. It's, it's be more interactive. Fun, right. There's been a 27% growth in board game sales from 2015. Last year, it hit $2.9 billion, according to the whatever marketing group is focused on board games. Uh, far outpa- outpacing sales growth for all toys. Yeah. Right? So a big focus wow. on them. And if you go look, there's all kinds of board games. Yeah, oh yeah. Varieties everywhere. Online, there's all kinds of companies that m- try to make unique games. Uh-huh. And, and for all age groups. But it says um, here, it says, the downside to the old-fashioned family time is the tedium of some of these board games that your five- and six-year-old are at their level to play. Right, right. right. Like a Candyland, yeah. Shoots of Ladders, those Nightmare. kind of games. <laughs> 
It says your kid almost gets to the end, and then they draw that card that sends them all the way back down to the start, <laughs> says Ryan O'Connor of Deerfield, New Hampshire. He's a father of five- and six-year-old daughters. He goes, I've got things to do, like you know, make them dinner. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, i got, I mean, people to see. He goes, that's why parents are palming cards, strategically adding pieces when their children aren't looking, and sometimes oh, outright lying. sure. Not without irony, some parents have used technology to make games go faster. Um, data analyst Ethan Markowitz employed statistical analysis to figure out a more efficient way of hastening shoots and ladders. <laughs> Finding the end of that game. I don't like that yeah. game myself. After one too many mind-numbing games, he goes, just like a senior citizen at the bingo parlor, my son is hooked. <laughs> it's like an all-you-can-eat salad bar. He wrote this on his own blog detailing his findings. All we do is spin, move, spin, move until my son performs his victory dance. Or if I'm unlucky enough to actually win the game, he demands a rematch. Right, because he can't stand to lose. No way. So he's a data analyst. So he went and looked at, at shoots and ladders. There are nine ladders and ten shoots, which means a bias towards losing because the shoots send you back down to the right, bottom of the exactly. board, right? So he programmed a simulation of 10,000 two-player games, which showed the dreariness could last as many as 146 turns. <laughs> His solution was to tape a new ladder to the board between space 47 and 72. Oh, he that, invented a ladder. Yeah, that lowered the low, the longest game to only 110 moves. Wow. Right? Geez. Barry Wise, a father, set out to help preserve uh, the sanity of parents with his own data analysis, suggesting eliminating the longest shoot spanning 87 or space, space 87 to 24. So they're they're taking what? the kids' game and they're trying to figure out how can I do this Little so cheats. the kid doesn't notice. Yeah. Why why wouldn't you just get another game? Okay, so Candyland. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the guy, the 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 one of the two men we just talked about, recommend Candyland with its three point four percent chance of running longer than seventy five moves. Okay, right? how about Legos? He goes. Also, you have to eliminate the rule Legos. of sending pieces backwards in Candyland. Yeah, it's such demoralizing to the parent when you're like. Don't go back to the gummy gummy (laughs) drop road or whatever it's called. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So Jennifer Hogan-Jones of Wichita, Kansas. Again, more parents cheating. She argued on board games. She has a blog apparently about board games. But she says purposeful losing for your child. Right. She says that children like her daughter need to learn how to handle disappointment. The plan is to prepare her for losing in life so in 15 years she won't throw a hissy fit and slam the door when she loses out on something at the yeah, office. Yeah, that's a good point. So she's like, we're, 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 we're helping our children. Kids, yeah. Board parents are using a wide variety of tactics to bring their family games, like Monopoly and Uno, to a close as quick as possible, including palming cards, adding pieces when the kids aren't looking. Uh, they talk about... Um, how like the the five and six year olds it's kind of set up because as they're holding their cards yeah. in a card game they tend to look away and get distracted yeah. and tip their cards and so the parents can look and see what if it's uno they can you can uh, see yeah. the color and you can like manipulate it so that you win <laughs> just to end it because you got things to do and then you you served your time right you helped you played with your kids but I mean I, I guess are we missing the point it seems like we're missing the point yes because but or maybe what you could do is you could just say we'll go for a time limit. You could just you could set a that. timer, and our we have 40 minutes for game time. And that might be a quarter of a shoots and ladder game. Right. Because, you know, they run easily into the three hours. Now, what we do is we'll set a time limit, and then we'll, we'll also point out there's you can't get mad, you can't pout. Mm-hmm. 
this is the time we have to play. Because yeah. we get, he's like all all on board till you hit that time, and he's like, no, we can't stop. You know, he goes, <laughs> no, hey. that's that. You know what else you do is you give your kid a Benadryl, <laughs> then you play the board game. Drug your children. That's another this way is, to do this it. This is the coach's approach here today. Yeah. Um, also, they talk about here that uh, Hasbro created a new Monopoly version that encouraged cheating only in this case to win, right? So that's the whole point is you figure you're going to win. So prompted by the late 2017 survey of customers, Hasbro plans to create a cheater's version. It's out on the market right now, I believe. About half of the respondents admitted to duplicity while playing the real estate game. He goes, we were quite surprised it was that high, that there's that many people half cheating. Half people are cheating. Some marketing executives from Hasbro. The, uh, the new edition will reward players who can, say, move a rival's piece without notice or collect rent of an opponent's property. Yeah. Like when you tell someone, oh, I own that, and they just give you rent, you're like, all right, and you get bonus points for cheating. Take that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A, a cheater's version. It seems like we're maybe missing the point of all of this. It used to be that you had nothing else to do, yeah. so you would play these games, and they were just fun forever because you could talk and relate. Now it's like we play them because we feel like we should, but we're really trying to just get through it so we can get to what we really want to do. But Netflix. as a parent who has been stuck in the never-ending cycle of shoots and ladders yeah. or in Candyland where you get towards the end and you have like five or six spaces left. Right. And so you can truly only move if you get that color. Yeah. You draw that from You're the trapped. card. But then when you draw the mushroom, the uh, I keep calling mushrooms, but the uh, gummy bear or gummy drop yeah. and you have to drop like 40 spaces back, the game never ends. It, it is, and the, it's like, come on, let's just end this. Let's do something fast. That's why tic tac toe is good yeah. because there's an end. Uh huh. It just seems like the games are set up to never end. Connect but. four. Mm-hmm. That's a great game because you that goes fast, right? And you can lose really easily on that game. You just you just keep you just keep you know not seeing the big mistakes. Wow. Okay, parents, what are we doing to our kids? For heaven's sakes, maybe we ought to just. Find the joy in just being there, set some rules, set some time limits, and then I guess cheat. <laughs> it's just what you got to do sometimes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What a, what a difficult job. Can you imagine being the CEO of your company? Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I would kill it, kill it. But it's got to be a really difficult thing to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's got an opinion, everybody you know, thinks they could lead the company better and then your job is to actually get it done and meet with the board and – but yeah, but you make so much money. Um, it's interesting uh, when when Jim talked about the fact that the market is is what uh, pays pays these CEOs um, it, and, and you're paid, he said, what you're worth. But what what he means by that is if I – can go get millions of listeners to listen to a radio show, then um, and they're doing it because they want to listen to me, then we can afford to pay me more. I'm not like making an argument here for myself, by the way. Um, but the point is there's a market. And the, the funny thing is some of the most important jobs in the world don't get paid by the market necessarily. Um, they don't necessarily – we don't pay our teachers based on the great – insights that they gave their students to go allow them to go on and create Apple um, or to create Google. We didn't pay them for that. But we pay our CEOs based on the marketplace, right? 
And so it's easy to get really offended and and frustrated by what CEOs are making. Um, and so – and there's no easy way through this. Some of the most important jobs when you think about it aren't even paid. I mean being a parent, you're not paid to be a parent. You're not paid to be uh, – you're not paid anything near what you'd be worth to be uh, that nurse that just is there for you and actually connected and relating to you. Think of anybody in a job or a profession that really has made a difference and uh, they're not probably being paid for all the social and the relational stuff that matters. So um, it's hard. It's hard when we look at a world where some CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars and you know other people that lead huge organizations of incredibly motivated, uplifted people aren't. And I guess in the end, we have to kind of be clear about what, what really matters and – it doesn't mean you just can spread the money everywhere evenly either, right, because there are market forces at play. But it also doesn't mean that we can't uh, find other ways to respect and hold these people up. There are some things in this world that you can only see with the heart, and uh, one of those is just the goodness of other people. And a lot of times you won't be compensated on earth for that goodness. I guess that's why it's worth believing in a heaven where you might be compensated there. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We have all of this nostalgia for music, and I, I really wonder what it's what it's about. It, it seems like deep, deep down, um, there's we many of us. I mean, maybe of the older generation, we want to get back to that good old fashioned day when you could leave your front door open, uh, you know, have the screen on, maybe put some vinyls on, and 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 get back and and just enjoy listening to some great music. Hmm? Or when you used to – like I used to go hang out at my grandparents' house and every – I think it was Sunday we'd sit around the old uh, wood box television, like real nice wood furniture television set and we would watch Lawrence Welk. And we'd get to see a really nice variety show of dancing and champagne dreams, <laughs> bubbles everywhere. Ah. And I look at my kids and I, I, I think our earlier guests made a really excellent point that they're, um, they, they can look at these really incredible masterpieces, but it really is just like they're driving by a billboard. Oh, OK. Yeah, I saw that. Yep. yep nope, saw that. Oh, had that experience. But I guess because we had fewer things going on, these things became more universal. They became more shared kind of collective events. And it might be telling us that there's something powerful in creating culture. And uh, personally, there's a lot I think we can do with our families. There's a lot we can do with our kids to create a feeling of culture like that. Kids want predictability. They want to know that we're going to have a certain uh, you know, predictable schedule in our lives. We're going to have a family meeting um, once a week, or we're going like with us, our kids like to know that we're going to have a family prayer at the end of the day, something, just something that tells them that everything's okay. We're all fine. And even though they kind of moan when you're like, okay, hey, let's get together and have a family time. They, of course they're going to moan. That's what teenagers do, but they predictably get there and we then can have some great conversations. We can share some great stuff. So don't think just because, you know, Life is moving on. Great musicians are passing on. 
um, that, that this world isn't a great place. We just need to take the principles of things we used to do, like we need to sit around and have more talks. We need to have more family circles where we share more insight. We need to ask them to turn the, the intervening technology off so that they can actually be present and start experiencing certain things and slowly but surely drip more and more opportunity, more culture, more connection into their lives. Family dinner is a great place to do that as well. So the research bears out that when you're having events like that, you're going to create stronger families, stronger kids, and that's the goal for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in studio is Karen Mangum. She's a licensed registered dietitian, a seasoned recipe developer, food blogger, nutrition consultant, and happens to be uh, has a great blog, InsideKaren'sKitchen.com, but happens to be right uh, now on campus because her cute little boy, Tanner Mangum, is graduating. Yep, he is. How cool is that? I know. He's graduating in sociology. He's oh, worked very hard. This has been a great? fascinating field for him. Well, especially, yeah, because he's got to understand like the mind and the team and all of these well, things and, he was doing the, anyway. And the community and what's happening yeah. in our culture. And he's been working with a professor in the area of isolation and loneliness oh, really? related to, even to um, uh, older individuals, but also this rising generation of social media and yes. phone use and <gasps> kids feeling very, very alone. Yeah, he needs to write a book. Oh, no. No. I mean, eventually. Well, who knows? His experiences have been varied and very interesting. And he's excited about his future. He really is thinking about postgraduate work. So he'll stay because he'll play another season. And And then I guess he can go to school for a year. Yeah, he can go to school. Um, Yeah, he's got some big plans. So he's excited. Is he, um, I, I mean, is this not the greatest thing a parent can do when you get to watch your kid graduate. Yesterday at the commencement, yeah. I have to say it was very, very like um, you know, hair raising on your arms, just like like <laughs> you know, happening. goosebumps. It's really exciting, Don't you and love that? the speakers were fantastic, and uh, it was a very um, in you know, warm, yeah. supportive environment. And the, and one of the speakers, particularly, it was the. Um, Director of the Alumni Association just talked about how important this is, not just to the to the graduate, but yeah. to the families. Yeah. And think about yeah. us. We helped make this happen. We made it happen, and you did. And and then you drive down all the time to support him and to support your daughter on the basketball right. team. I mean, yeah. oh, there's nothing better though when you can just say, "Okay." Goal accomplished. Yeah, it was good. So, oh, I love it. So one of the That's fun cool. things we did, though, yesterday, Matt, was really fun. So we, we went over to the basketball um, uh, at what do you call that? That the, new building. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And because um, Abby, of course, plays on She's... the team, and so we all grabbed a basketball. We were all shooting around. How and, fun. And then we got this fun picture of all of us standing Playing there, ball. looking really fierce. But and you, you were dressed in oh yeah, suits. We were dressed and in suits. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. How nice. So it was really fun. But what? To, how fun too that you also. I'm glad that you could come in live because we never get to see you. You always come on to talk food uh, ideas and healthy eating ideas. Last time you were on, you introduced us to five principles of intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, today you're going to give us another five. Right. You're like really trying to make us intuitive eaters. I think we need to be. Yeah. You know, as a registered dietitian who's worked in this field for quite a while now, I have seen so much pain and suffering, mm. particularly in the field where I have been working in the last 17 years. I've been working with people who have weight loss surgery and they present themselves really broken. Yeah. They have, um, you know, tried so many different diets and have felt like failures. So when they um, come to us, you know, granted, this is a last resort type of approach. Mm-hmm. It's pretty drastic to oh, yeah. reduce the size of your stomach. But in, in some ways, it helps you become. And so we teach them how to become how cool. intuitive eaters yeah. because they now will be much more in tune with those signals. So the last time we chatted two weeks ago, we talked a lot about honoring your hunger and respecting your fullness. Right. And, you know, so really listening to your body signals. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, moving forward a little bit. And one of the first things we want to talk about is really understanding um, or re, uh, refinding, I don't know what's yeah, the word. Rediscovering. Um, rediscovering your satisfaction factor. Like, can you really enjoy food just for food at sake? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Or, instead, instead of like needing that satiated, bloated, heavy feeling. Mm-hmm. Can you just actually just enjoy the taste of it yes. for a while? And remember that food is not just taste. Yeah. And that's what we teach individuals. It's, it's um, you know, it's textures Texture. and smells uh-huh. and the sight of it, even hearing the crackling and sizzling of food. So you make it much more of a sensual experience yeah. if you can. But it does require you to slow down. And a lot of people just don't want to do that. So That's a, so true. A good example, last night we went out to dinner <clears throat> after the graduation. We went up to a wonderful Thai Thai, um, I guess it's really a Thai restaurant up in Lehigh, and the, we all ordered a variety of things to share. Yeah, and you know it was a big table of people, and dishes were being passed back and forth, and you know there was a little bit of a feeling like, oh, am I going to get my share? Because everybody, you know, the big boys well, yeah, yeah, down yeah. there at the end of the <laughs> end of the table, the brothers are all yeah. just like eating up, and so we actually had to order more food because there was it was going so fast, it was going so fast. But at the same time, I found a dish. It was a red curry that was so delicious to me. Interesting. I slowed down. I didn't really care about so much the rest. I just really wanted to focus on the flavors of that red curry over my brown rice. And I ate it slowly and enjoyed the smells. I even did. I pulled the bowl up and smelled it. And I could could smell the lemongrass. I could taste it. The the curry. It was just really, really yummy. yummy. The whole experience. Right. So it was. You see that with judges like the judge television uh, food prep shows or whatever they're called, um, you see them actually, they go very slow. They only have a few bites and they just enjoy it. They savor the whole thing. The whole thing. That's why I'd be a horrible judge (laughs) because I'd be through the dish before before I've even able to taste it. I think what it does for you, though, it helps you to realize that you don't need as much food to feel satisfied. It's true, huh? Right? Yeah. So you eat a little bit less. That's like, I like sushi for that reason. Yeah. I never seem yes. to get really full. Right? But, but, oh, you feel so satisfied. And there's got to be just, you know, nutritionally, there has to be a, some fat in the dish itself, too. Okay, so yeah. Because f- fat is one of the things that so, actually that a, signals chemically. A, oh, okay, it does it. Once it hits the small intestine, and it is the last thing to leave the gut. So once it hits the small intestine, it triggers a, to your brain through a hormonal 
pathway that you are full You're and full. that you are satisfied and you don't need any more. That's I did not know that. Yeah. So we should just drink some fat. <laughs> then well, you're done. there is some suggestion there, that if there's you probably better ways. <laughs> probably better ways. <laughs> Good. Give us some more, Karen. What are hey, some other ways to be intuitive? Well, this is a big one. Then this next one, it's called honor your feelings without using food. Okay. Okay. So yeah. How do we you do that? know that you yeah. probably have seen this. And in, in a lot of my patients, they'll use food as a way to deal with stress, with anger, with frustration, with boredom, mm. loneliness. So a lot of maybe late night binge eating mm-hmm. might be reflected in those um, stressor triggers. Yeah. And what we realize is that food can't fix those feelings. We have to come to the understanding and the realization that food cannot fix those feelings. Uh, we have it's to, true. you know, it'll, it'll temporarily numb them, and uh-huh. and maybe you feel like, wow, that gave me a little pleasure there that I kind of yeah. needed. Yeah. But in the end, it'll make it worse. That's why comfort foods that's, come to mind, right? Like it, I need my mac and cheese. Yeah. Well, and if you're hungry, that's okay. That's, That's fine, okay because yeah. we're honoring our hunger. But, but if you really are not hungry and you're using food for reasons that have nothing to do mm. with being hungry, then, you know, and over time, the pattern of eating is one thing that we look at. So mm. food won't solve the problem. No. You'll ultimately have to deal with the source of the emotion eventually. And so maybe it's it. I always encourage patients to sort of stop a minute, ask yourself, am I hungry? And if I'm not, then what am, what, did, what is it I want this food to do for me? Interesting. What is it I want this food to do for me? That's such I want a great it question. To, yeah, to take away my, hung, my anger. I yeah. want it to take away my frustration with my kids or my, my spouse or whatever the situation may be. That's good. And, um, I, I, then you could so, just instead just throw it. Do anything else with it. Can like, you do I mean, that? I don't know. That might get rid of the emotion well, just you, as good as You know better it. than anybody yeah. maybe what just to do with that emotion. Just it up into a big Ooh. bowl of macaroni and then throw the – Well, no, throw it away. That gets a little violent. Throw it away. But so honor your feelings without using the food. Yeah. but yeah. And actually, so I guess part of that is just recognizing what you really are doing this for. Yes. And and then maybe just think about it. Think. You have to think that for a minute. That does make it it's now now you're in the Ooh. present moment. And and sometimes we we just don't want to deal with that no. hard emotion. Uh-huh. That's the hard thing. Yeah, right. All right. So another wonderful intuitive principle is um, the idea of respecting our bodies. Mm. And this is hard for for people who perhaps have gained weight and don't feel comfortable, don't don't really like you know what's going on with their yeah. bodies and and especially in our culture of thinness and yeah. oh it's just really really hard to especially you know bathing suit season yeah. like oh i just Ugh. don't want to go there so you know we have to come to an understanding though everybody is different like my shoe size is a size 10 i'm never going to fit into cinderella's size 6 I'm just not going to be there. I had a a sister growing up who was much smaller than I am. I'm, you know, I'm 5'10, really, really tall. She's maybe 5'6, 105 Uh, pounds, you know. Little waifs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I was always comparing myself to her, always. And um, finally, I think it was my mom who finally just said, Karen, you are statuesque. You know, you're never going to be tiny and petite, but you're statuesque and you're beautiful. And she really helped me to feel like even at my size, you're good enough. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, and I'm never going to be that other. And so you have to. Well, and your sister will never be statuesque. No, and she'll never be five ten. And you could take her. 
You could just. I can. You can. You can tackle her right down. Not that I want to, but um, but because, but that also says that, we, and we can all feel really good in the body we've been given, and yes. just keep it healthy. Keep it healthy, and so appreciate. Just you know, even if we're not at the size that we want to be, yeah. right? Yeah. To appreciate the fact that we're moving, uh-huh. that that we can um, be alive, that we can function. You know, and and if you're not, then you can start. You start by getting out and walking a little bit, walking to your mailbox, and come back. And then each day you're going to go further and further. And as you do that, you start to appreciate the fact that you can move. Totally. And that actually leads us to the next one, which is. Um, exercising and really, you know, finding that body movement is something that you really enjoy rather than doing it just for weight loss. Like, you know, you get up in the morning and say, okay, I got to go to the gym because I got to lose weight. Well, that's, that's not fun. Right, right. But you're saying get into the moment that you're moving, feel it, feel Feel that you're Body is yeah. working, and and how do you feel after you do it? Yeah, I feel great. Like, do you yeah. feel great when you work yeah. work out and move and mm-hmm. you know, get on a bike and sweat a little bit and and don't be afraid of the sweat. Yeah, I have to re- I admit that was one thing that really kind of got me excited early on about exercise was that sweat is my friend and sweat I, is good. <laughs> sweat is good. You know, women sometimes are afraid of yeah. doing that, yeah. but you want to glow. But no, you you, you got to drip. drip. You got to drip. You got to drip. You got to really work and get that's your neat. heart rate yeah. up. But you feel so good. So that's what you have to remember. Mm. Kind of like when you go out and you know you you're asked to go to a service project or right, something, and right. you say, "I don't know if I really want to go do that." Yeah. And then you go do it, and you feel awesome. You feel great after. It's kind of like that with exercise. It's true because you're. I guess you are exercising a. a, a, a gift a talent you're exercising service you're exercising your spirit service to your body i think in many ways i love that idea that's a great idea and and just because otherwise we always go for feelings anyway what -hmm. if you could actually find the feeling of because by the way after the exercise you feel good that's when you feel it because that's when the chemicals the endorphins have but about an hour and a half later you might ache you might ache but at the same time you might feel like Ooh, that was actually a good. Yeah, I've moved muscles a, I've, that I hadn't better. used before. Mm-hmm. I am getting better. Yeah, I'm getting stronger. I climbed the stairs and I got yeah. farther than I normally do. Exactly, That's and you cool. can feel accomplished. That's like great. you've really, yeah, you've met, you've met a goal. And really, the last one, the last piece of intuitive eating is to honor your health. Hmm. And what this means basically is, you know, making recognizing that you value, that you are of worth, that that your life matters. And as a result of that, I want to um, really take care of this gift, this body gift that I've been given. Yeah. And it is a responsibility, and I recognize it as such. And so I'm going to honor that. That means I'm going to make um, good uh, food choices today. I'm going to choose my fruits and vegetables. I'm going to choose yeah. my lean proteins, my healthy fats. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to enjoy that food. I'm going to find the satisfaction. I'm going to try to get some body movement in today mm-hmm. because that's honoring your health. And remember, you, there's no such thing as 100% perfect eating. Right, right. I, we, that's what I love about you, though, is that you can but enjoy it. Yes. But be as just be as healthy as you can be today. Right. So guess what we did after eating Thai food? Oh, I know. 
Ice cream, I bet. Yes. You had to. Well, <laughs> that, but you don't need ice cream every day. Exactly. I don't eat it every day. But when you have your boys and your girls together, we yeah, go get ice we cream. we go get ice cream afterwards. And it was cool. so fun. We sat outside and we chatted this beautiful weather. It's mm. glorious. And we all, in fact, I split something with my husband. Why? We each enjoyed it because <laughs> because all we needed. I know, that's it. Honestly. Just a little the bit. The portions were big. Yeah. So all we needed was just a few yeah. a few bites. We each took me you know five six bites. It was fabulous. We enjoyed Perfect. it, and I, my mind was over a cookie. It was ice cream over a cookie, uh, and it tasted hold so on. And you're good. a dietitian, yes, because I practice intuitive That's right. eating. That's right. And then and then you would know maybe you couldn't even finish it, right? And then all of a sudden, no, you're thinking, we did. But you did finish it. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, we kind of licked the plate. Yeah. Because it was so. But good. even if you can't finish it, then your body, being an intuitive eater, you'd say. Why do I need to finish it? Yeah. What about this yeah. makes me feel like I have to finish it? Right. Particularly if you're satisfied and you feel good. Because mm. there is something called flavor fatigue. Oh, really? Isn't that funny? I didn't Where, know that. Like if you eat something, like the first few bites mean the most. Oh, yeah. And then as you eat more and more of the same thing, it kind of loses its interest, loses yeah. its savor. And, and you yet, don't want it anymore. And yet the non-intuitive eater would say, oh, i got to finish that because there's, it's there. There's people in another country that don't have oh, this. Or something like Isn't that. Isn't that weird? The, yeah, the clean, clean the plate club. So um, all of these, again, they can find them on your website, InsideKaren'sKitchen.com. Right. But there's 10 of these. And I guess if we just could practice one or two or three a day, yeah. over time you will become a more intuitive eater. In fact, these things do take time. Yeah. They take time. Like So when you work with a therapist or someone um, like myself who teaches intuitive eating, it does take time. You have to practice. You're not going to have like, <clears throat> you know, that immediate weight no. loss. Right. You're going to have to explore what the role of food is in your life first. Yeah. You know, what is it I want this food to do for me? We're just constantly asking the why. Is it does it switch the other way where forever you're trying to be skinny and it's always about I've got to be skinny and skinny mm-hmm. and let's say you gain weight uh, can can you also just flip it to the other side where everything becomes about your weight and you're healthy now. Well, you know what I mean? Could it become negative in the positive? Well, if you for finding that that's your preoccupation. Yeah. How do you get over I that? I think that that's where this comes in. It's like, I, am I ever going to be a size six? Yeah. Is that realistic for me? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of our, like our bariatric patients who, you know, uh, present at a three plus or, you know, size 24 or whatever. And, and they find like getting down to a size 14, 12. And remember this, Matt. Yeah. The average size for women in America is a size 14. Is there, yeah. That's the average. Yeah, that's the average. She's 5'5", so five, five, yeah, and this, she weighs yeah. you know, 160, 170 pounds. That is very, very average. Now, that's above what would be considered like that BMI. We're throwing that BMI out right now. BMI. Yeah. We are. We're actually throwing it out. Good. In fact, even in practice, you're seeing less really? and less of it you being used yeah. as a marker because we're, we're trying to understand a little more about body composition, right. recognizing that BMI doesn't really... You know, we can still be healthy at a lot of different sizes. There's a strong, strong movement called health at every size. And that is, you you can kind of look that up too, health at every size. Or you can just go to Karen's website. You can and learn a lot. Inside Karen's Kitchen. Uh, Karen, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. She's the best. By the way, you can go there and just look at the pictures. I just go look at all of her pictures of all of her great meals. Thank you. It's so good. Karen's the best. Have fun with your kids. Thank you. But not ice cream every day, Karen. Not every day.
but tonight for sure. Probably. Uh, we will continue the journey more straight ahead. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, just as it's important to be an intuitive eater, wouldn't it be powerful if we could uh, manage our relationships, our lives by uh, more of our intuitive abilities, more of our intuitive gifts? A lot of us think, yeah, I'm not very good at that relationship stuff, but I believe inside of each of us are some very basic gifts. Uh, Stephen Covey used to call a version of what I'm talking about um, endowments, that we all had these endowments or gifts. And if we would work the endowment or the gift, we could make it um, healthier, stronger, actually appreciate it and, and make it bigger. And so I wanted to suggest that there are four things that every one of us possesses. And if we exercise these four lights, I call them, then uh, we we could probably turn our lives into to you know being run a little bit more by our conscience by our intuition. One of the four lights is called self awareness. Self awareness is simply the idea that as a human being you can become more and more aware of how you impact others, how you impact the world, how you impact yourself. You can become more self aware of your own thinking and uh, some of your thinking errors, some of your you know some of the ways that you approach life. Self-awareness. And one of the ways we do that is if uh, if we've had an episode, something happened to us in our lives, maybe we just got in an argument. And at the end of the argument, instead of just walking away and, you know, turning on a game and ignoring everything, what if we just slowly uh, went through some of these lights at, like self-awareness and asked ourselves a question like what what just happened here? Um, what part of what happened in this argument, what part of that problem was I? What, what am I feeling and, and what am I noticing? Why, why was I so reactive in that situation? And just use some of your own awareness to see if you can't figure out more about you. Self-awareness is a very basic, intuitive, I believe, gift or endowment that if you're, as a human being, the more you become self-aware of your weaknesses, your strengths, your frailties, your idiosyncrasies, your tendencies, some of your thinking, the more aware you are, the better off you are uh, able to interact with others and get better results and actually probably feel more peace because you can then start aligning your actions to your values. So self-awareness is one of our lights. Another one is empathy. Empathy is really more about other awareness. Empathy is about me understanding the needs and the wants of others around me. And you can see that if you're a self-aware person, you are usually more other aware. If I can deeply understand my own needs, my own idiosyncrasies, my own likes, my own dislikes, then I might be able to understand a little bit better of yours. Empathy is where I could ask myself the question, what were the needs and the wants of my partner in that last argument we just had? What were they trying to convey to me? Another question I like to ask uh, clients is, what is it like to be married to me or to you? When you're sitting there you know, berating, bemoaning this difficult partner of yours, what is it like to be married to you? Oh, it's a blessing. 
she is so lucky to have me. That is probably not very self-aware. The reality is it's probably hard to be married to you. You might be too demanding. You might be too um you might be too giving. You might, you know, be too willing to to not take a stand. But empathy is I believe an intuitive ability and I think if we actually work on it a little bit more and gather the skill and focus on it, I can not only be self-aware, I can also be other-aware and more empathic. The third light that we can turn on is the light that I call vision. Vision is this idea of what I want to be and do and uh, and become for the future. And if I have a vision with my spouse and together we have a clear idea of what we want most together, then um, that should be a part of all of our decision-making. So after my fight with or an argument with my spouse, I sit down and I ask the questions. What part of the problem am I? That's self-awareness. Empathy, what are the needs and wants of my partner in that discussion? And the vision question would be, what do we most want together? What, what are we trying to do as a couple here? And what are we really in our highest values, in our highest sense of self, what do we want to create together? And then that helps us identify kind of a connection of the ideal. What does that ideal world together look like? And then the last question we ask is the intuitive question, I believe, that we call the conscience. The conscience is our ability to make a decision based on our values, on our principles, on the things we hold most dear. And the conscience question is, what is the most important thing I can do today to positively impact this relationship? What's the most important thing I can do today to be the kind of person I want to be, to live that vision that we want together, to meet my partner's needs? And then I let my conscience be my guide. I let my conscience tell me what I should do right now after this argument to go make it better. And if my conscience tells me to get up and go down and apologize, then I just need to see if I have the character to do that. But my conscience will always lead me to be more aligned to my value system. The only question is, am I going to turn that light on? It's not enough to just be aware of our problems. It's not enough to just be uh, empathic to others. It's not enough to just know what you want in a vision of life. At some point, you have to also let your values do the teaching, right? Let your values be the guide. And if your conscience tells you to do something, then do you have the character to step up? Four basic lights, self-awareness, empathy, vision, and conscience. They're all, I think, inside of each of us. We just have to exercise them, and a lot of times we don't um, because it's it's just too easy to, to blame our partner, right, and to not care and not be empathic and to not see our big-term, long-term vision while we're in the middle of a short-term battle. And we don't necessarily always want to engage our conscience because— I think we're afraid we'll feel guilty because of it. So a little advice, right? I can't I can't make it any more simple than that, but I know I struggle with these lights, but I also know that anytime I have a problem when I'm coaching somebody, those are four very basic questions. What part of the problem of the or solution are you? What are the needs and wants of those around you? What do we want most together? And what's the most important thing you can do right now? And then I found if I just go do that one thing, man, I feel better. I feel better, and the relationship grows, and it improves. Makes sense? Pretty basic stuff. 
the lights, the four lights, I call those. And uh, I really believe they're the road to a healthier, healthier and more kind of uh, integrated, healthy, whole life. So we'll continue the journey, folks. Uh, Up next, we'll be talking about some more tools to fix broken or breaking relationships. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We all have uh, relationship issues with somebody, you know, sometimes we just can't communicate like we need to, apologizing isn't there, it's just hard. And so wouldn't it be great if you had a, a really impressive toolkit or toolbox that could help you handle the relationships in your life? Well, uh, a while ago, we interviewed Alan C. Fox, who's the author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. And we wanted to revisit some of that interview with you today. Uh, I, I, I began the interview asking um, about how, you know, sometimes we expect people to be able to read our minds. That's for sure. And we expect it. Uh, yeah. People Tools for Love and Relationships, I have a chapter on that. And uh you, 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 mind reading. If you loved me, I wouldn't have to ask. <laughs> and don't we all tend to believe that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I come home and say, well, why did you make this for dinner? You know that's what I wanted. Well, how in the world is, <laughs> is anybody going to go anything unless I tell them? Yeah. And, you know, and, and someone gets angry at me for not reading their mind, I tell them, hey, you know, I turned in my license. I'm I'm really no good at mind reading. So, and, and, you know, there's another tool that goes with that, Matt, which is it's okay to ask. You know, my father got so angry when you asked him for something he right. wanted to say no to that he got really angry. I learned just don't ask, don't yeah. ask. Well, it's okay to ask, and it's also okay to say no. You don't have to get angry about it. Well, yeah. It, it, how many of us go through life never asking, you know, for the same reason? You know, you may have learned you may get your hand slapped a lot when you're a kid, so you're like, I'm just not going to ask. But if you never ask, you never – I guess you'd never get married. <laughs> if you never ask, you'd never get what you want. That's for sure. Absolutely. And then there's that weird moment though, isn't there, that when you have to ask and you extend yourself and you're vulnerable and then they shut you down, it almost seems like you're much more inclined to just never bring it up again. Well, that's one way. Not asking is one way to avoid rejection. Yeah. But as they say, uh, if you ask a hundred times and you get five yeses, that's better than not asking at all and never getting one yes. Mm-hmm. It's it, that's I think what's so strange about relationships is because it's so there's so many different individual preferences that we have, personal preferences that might get in the way. How, how do I negotiate your preferences versus mine? How do we how do we get through that so we don't end up fighting just about preference? Well, I, I think one thing you have to do is appeal to their self-interest. In other words, if, if, if I want a friend or my wife to do something and, and they have a problem with it, um, you know, suppose I want to go to uh, an opera. My wife doesn't want to go to the opera. I say, okay, what, what, what do I have to do to get you to go to the opera? And she might say, well, if you go to this wedding with me of yeah. a friend, then I'll go to the opera. So appeal to, to what they want. You know what you want, but yeah. you have to get cooperation for somebody else. Well, that's that's probably the real estate guy in you. <laughs> I mean, right? You got to you got to first find out what someone wants in order to make a sell. Absolutely, Matt. That's 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 a good pickup. And in real estate, I always want to find out what the other side wants. What's most important? Is it is it price? Is it quick action? 
Location, yeah. Location, whatever they want that's most important, that's what I want to give them. Yeah, and if you assume that, you're dead, aren't you? Because then I'm just going to keep trying to push price when price may not be your trigger. Exactly right. Absolutely. Huh. And it's funny, you wouldn't always think that that's the same in your marriage, but it really is. I mean, if your wife really wants to get to this wedding, she might sit through an opera just to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's a matter of, it's not that your partner's going to give you everything you want. It's it's a matter of negotiation, and you do some things for them and some things for yourself. Hmm. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, they say, you know, a compromise, uh, you know, it's a good compromise if uh, if both people are slightly dissatisfied. Yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, it, it, that's that's what I used to always do as a mediator is I would just, you know, they'd always offer this brilliant solution that's so one-sided. And I'd always ask, okay, so if we just turn the deal, you'd, you'd like that? Well, yeah, ab- and then absolutely. all of a sudden, you know, it's got to be an equal deal on both sides. And I, yeah, and man, being a mediator, I think it's excellent, excellent training for uh, for real life. Because as a mediator, you see the issues objectively, and the parties can't do that themselves. Yeah, man. When I was a mediator, one of the biggest issues that seemed to just blur all common thought was money, finances, any issue about money. Are there any specific tools we should use when we're talking about money with the people we care about or with the people in our lives? Absolutely. And one of my chapters in People Tools for Love and Relationship is let's talk about money. In most families, they don't talk about money. You know, my second wife said to me one day, my parents need financial help. I said, well, how do you know? She said, well, it's just a feeling. I said, well, what does your dad earn? She said, I don't know. Well, they have problems making their mortgage payment? I, I don't know. Why do you think they... Just a feeling. You talk to them. So I talked to them, and no, they were perfectly okay. And if you're uncomfortable talking about something, how can you solve problems? Yeah. I mean, a woman I knew got married, and two years later, she and her husband went to buy a house. His credit was horrible. They couldn't qualify for the loan. She didn't know that. They never talked about money. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Absolutely. So we're not even going to talk about it? I mean, that's then I guess, yeah, then you're just left guessing. Well, I, I had a funny one. <clears throat> my first wife, when I was driving, she would start rubbing the back of my neck, which I really liked. And I had this idea that if I moved my head, she'd stop. <laughs> so I drove just using my eyes. And, you know, I should have said to her, honey, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move my head to drive properly, but, but keep on doing it. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Communicate, huh? You bet. Well, you're lucky you're not dead. <laughs> For sure. That would have totally ended the neck rub if you get in a car accident. Um, well, as we wrap this up, what would you say is the one thing? You know, I always like to end with kind of the one thing that makes the biggest difference. What is the one thing our, our audience can take away today and start using to, to have a better life with people? I think the one thing you can use is what you hear every time you, you take a flight on a commercial airliner, and that is put on your own oxygen mask first. In other words, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to get enough emotional satisfaction yourself to be of any use in a relationship. You know, some people uh, just take care of the other and take care of the other and take care of the other, and they, they've just got nothing left in the tank. Yeah. So be sure to take care of yourself. Put on your own oxygen mask first. 
Great advice from Alan C. Fox, author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. 